When I first started writing this, I lived in the South End, but I later lived in the North End for several years. Um, I thought a lot about my presence there as a white person and how I'm involved in and contribute to gentrification. I think that often like young white queer folks and artists and um, punks don't always think about themselves as not just victims of gentrification, but also often kind of the first wave or the second wave of gentrification. Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Today, author Jamie Burnett. the most difficult tasks for a writer of fiction is to connect a fully individualized character to larger societal issues. Many don't even bother to try and choose to work within the personal world of their character's perceptions and relationships. Not Jamie Burnett. In her ambitious debut novel, Crocus's Hatch from Snow, a whole cast of well-drawn characters grapple with historical forces none can escape. And like the characters, we readers may or may not acknowledge how those forces operate in our own lives, everything from race and sexual expression to the conflict between capitalism and the need for affordable shelter. Jamie Burnett, welcome to Book Me. Thank you. It's nice to be here. You've chosen one of the most hopeful images from nature in this region for the title. How do you see it applying to some of your characters' stories, Crocus's Hatch from Snow? Um, so the title comes from uh, a scene where the sort of main character, Ada, is looking around um, outside in the early spring and thinking about uh, how crocuses do it when they when they emerge from uh, the ground while it's still frozen and slushy and um, and so I was researching how that happens scientifically and what happens is that as the flowers come up against the resistance of the soil and other things weighing down on them, snow and other things, their stems thicken um, just enough so that they can push through and emerge and then thrive. Um, and so I guess I intended it to represent how people can be resilient through adversity and, and thrive. And break through a, a kind of oppressive thing that's keeping them down. Yeah, exactly. In your novel, you have a couple of multi-generational families uh, living adjacent to one another in North End Halifax in the late 20 aughts. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the two families. Um, so one family is Ada, the main character. She's a young, queer, white woman uh, in her early 20s. And her mother, Joan, who's a journalist, and her grandmother, Maddie. Um, and a another person who lives in the house is Maddie's ghost lover, uh, Edith. The, the family of Ada and Joan and Maddie has recently moved to the north end of Halifax from the south end. And they happen to move in beside Ken, who drove the excavator that um, demolished their old house. Uh, and so they move in next to Ken and his mother, Betty, and his children, Kia and Sean, and they're an African Nova Scotian family. Something that's really central for that family is that they're, they're all coping with the recent loss of Leona, uh, Ken's wife and the children's mother. Um, and there's some 
tension or discomfort with Ada's family that moves in next door who um, don't take the time to introduce themselves to their neighbors um, and who are part of this force of gentrification but who are kind of oblivious to it. Because they have so much going on in their lives. Yes, they have so much going on in their lives and are, I guess, just unaware of, of their involvement in that process. Now, for anyone who's fostered a crush, and I think that's probably everyone, uh, we see in Ada someone who, who really can't keep it from blooming into a, a full-blown obsession with another woman, Pan. Could you read an excerpt that, that gives us a glimpse of, of the power of that attraction? Sure. Uh, so this is from Chapter 5. Um, yeah, it sort of explores um, that kind of obsessive crush where you are thinking about the person all the time and you kind of get into the process of trying to change yourself to make yourself into someone who you think that person would like. And so after we've learned how deep this obsession is, uh, we come back and see the first time that Ada um, meets Pan. So, the first day Ada saw her, she was completely absorbed. Pan emitted a pure, low hum that radiated through the floor, up the metal tuning rod legs of Ada's chair, and into her body. She was captivated by the slow lowering and raising of Pan's eyelids as she read. Pan blinks less than most people. Her slow blinking eyes behind the thin frames of her glasses, like lazy fish in small glass bowls. Ada was so fascinated. The way Pan held her book like a fan, the gentle lean of her body in the rigid chair, the near indiscernible movement of her lips as her eyes absorbed the words on the page. When Pan finally looked up from the book and checked her wrist for the time, lifting herself out of her lean, Ada shut her book too. She dropped it twice before she got it finally into her bag, just as Pan was pushing herself out through the door and into the cool air. Ada left her pot of tea half-finished. She rushed out of the café. And there Pan was, calmly loping across the cobblestones, her granite-gray shoes blending in with the wet floor of the city. Ada followed, past the bike shop, the sushi place, two cafés, and a bookstore. Pan turned right and Ada followed her uphill until she slid through a door beneath a hanging sign that advertised ink and body piercing. She was caught off guard when she entered the room and came face to face with Pan, standing behind the counter. Pan grinned, and Ada's stomach dropped. Hi, Pan said. Ada can't remember what sound she made in response, but they were fumbling enough to prompt Pan to help her along with a gentle, Do you have an appointment today? No, just, uh, looking. Ada looked around. Yes, she would like to make an appointment. All she could think about at that moment was the slow, slight pursing and pressing of Pan's lips she read in the cafe and how she wanted to press her own against them now. And so she said, lips. Fuck. Ada blushed hot and closed her eyes, but Pan interpreted her slip. Did you want to get your lip pierced, Pan asked, seeming amused, because I have some time now if you want. Pan would touch her lips right then if she asked for it. Yes, Ada did want now, while Ada's attraction to Pan is sexual, their their fraught relationship bumps up against some of those larger issues I mentioned, in this case, race. And that surprises Ada. What did you want to show there in that moment? Yeah, so um, when I started writing this book, I was in my early 20s, and I 
was familiar with um, like the basic concept of racism, overt racism, um, but I was kind of operating on an understanding that you can be colorblind. <laughs> um, and so learning that that is not actually possible, um, nor is it any kind of answer to like the reality of racism. And so um, the character of Ada is a young white woman who is still kind of operating under this idea that you're not supposed to notice that people of color are people of color and you're definitely not supposed to talk about it. Um, and so there's a conversation between the two of them where um, Pan, who's older and politicized and does have an awareness of um, systemic racism from her personal life and also as like a, a more politicized person, uh, raises these things with Ada and Ada says something really stupid and ignorant and then has to grapple with the discomfort of going through um, the process of learning about systemic racism and white privilege and um, trying to be accountable and rebuild this relationship with this person. Now, Ada's story plays out in about 2007, 2008, and, and queer culture is part of everyday life in the city. But, but you contrast that with her grandmother Mattie's experiences in the late 1940s, and it, it's a time where there seems to be both a combination of innocence in the attraction, but also very, very powerful taboos regarding uh, both sexuality and race. T tell us a bit about Mattie and Edith. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so the book focuses around two queer love stories, Ada and Pan's and Ada's grandmother, Maddie, and her love, Edith. Um, so they meet when they are um, young, like uh, 16, 17, in Shubenacadie. And um, Maddie is a, a young white student at the uh, school in the town. And Edith is a Mi'kmaq student at the residential school who then uh, is later sent to attend the um, public school, which is something that sometimes happened. And so where in present day, maybe it is sometimes easier to recognize and give a name to your attraction or your identity where labels and relationships are things that, I don't know, you can see around you. So it's not like um, generally folks living like in Halifax would have queer desire but not understand it or have words for it, though I'm sure that still happens. Um, but in the 50s, these are two young girls who have this powerful friendship and feel this strong um, pull toward each other, but maybe don't quite understand it until until they really understand it. Um, in a small Nova Scotia community in the 50s uh, that was quite religious, I think in many cases, there's no um, tolerance at all for this kind of relationship. And so the character of Edith ends up moving to Toronto. And so uh, you see a little bit of the uh, like lesbian bar scene in 1950s Toronto through her character, um, which is, even though there was a community, it was still um, extremely persecuted, particularly by the police. Now you have the two families, which we mentioned earlier, living next door to one another, one African-Canadian, one Caucasian. 
Ken's family is living there because his parents were forcibly moved from the Africville community in Halifax in the late 1960s. But now both families are learning they're under the shadow of another one of those large forces, and that is the, the drive for profit versus the need for affordable housing and, and community, I guess, by extension. Was that something that helped you structure your novel, or was it problematic? Well, I think that like the the force of gentrification affects these two families quite differently because um, Ada's family, like Ada's mother, Joan, owns their home, um, and so while sh- she would be impacted by like rising property taxes, uh, the the difference is that Ken is a renter, and so um, he is subject to in some ways the choices of a landlord in in raising rent or finding a way to kick tenants out. Yeah, I don't know. It just, uh, because that was something I was learning and thinking a lot about at the time. When I first started writing this, I lived in the South End, but I later lived in the North End for several years. Um, I thought a lot about my presence there as a white person and how I'm involved in and contribute to gentrification. I think that often, um, like, young white queer folks and artists and um, punks don't always think about themselves as not just victims of gentrification, but also often kind of the first wave or the second wave of gentrification. Um, So I wanted to have that force represented in the book. Yeah, definitely part of the fabric of life there mm-hmm. in that period and, and still. Mm-hmm. Now, Ada, as a young white woman, gets that wake-up call from Pan about race that we were talking about. As a white author creating lives for characters who are Aboriginal, uh, African-Canadian, and Asian, in the case of Pan, tell us what you did to try to get those voices right. Yeah, so I've read books uh, where white authors represent characters of color, I think, in a really irresponsible and sometimes really harmful way. And so while I felt it was really important to not represent a Halifax that was all white, because it's not, I wanted to be really um, respectful um, in representing these voices. And so um, in writing the book, I did a lot of research. Uh, I listened to and watched and read um, work by Mi'kmaq and African Nova Scotian and South Asian writers, activists, um, scholars, and attended events like art openings and poetry readings and things like that. And then in my own um, editing process before I approached or before I submitted the the manuscript to Nimbus Vagrant, um, I asked African Nova Scotian and Mi'kmaq and South Asian friends to critically read the manuscript and, and give me their feedback about those representations. And then um, when I was speaking with Whitney Moran from Nimbus Vagrant, um, I talked to her about these thoughts and and that I also think it's really important to get that kind of feedback from readers who aren't my friends. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I think my friends are very honest, but it's... You need a, a more objective view. Yeah, yeah. So that was something we ended up working into my contract that um, Nimbus Vagrant would engage Mi'kmaq and African Nova Scotian readers to 
go through the manuscript again and provide me with feedback. So that was incredibly helpful. Now, that could have gone down a, a bad road, and it could have uh, sounded quite uh, laundered and vetted, overly vetted. But, uh, I mean, some of the things I remember best are, are the authenticity of of some great dialogue. I'm thinking about the, the young Ken and his friend Ray, these two guys talking about how you pick up chicks, and and you know the the uh, the underground lesbian bar scene in in Toronto in the nineteen fifties. Mm-hmm. You must be proud of some of those patches. Oh, thanks. Um, I'm glad that it uh, rang true or that it was fun to read. I mean, yeah, there's not much further from my own experience than I can write of like two men talking about picking up women like I don't have any experience <laughs> being part of that conversation. I I found in talking to other artists, whether they were visual artists or other writers, they kind of balked at the idea of um, submitting your work to um, multiple editors and, and who are often referred to as sensitivity readers um, and several people suggested like this was some kind of curtailment of your artistic expression or freedom of speech or whatever um but i think if someone gives you critical feedback your freedom of speech isn't being violated someone's just giving you critical feedback but i think that it's necessary to go through this process as someone with a lot of privilege that plays out in um publishing it's it is typically easier for white authors to be published. And if you're going to try to tell stories that involve um, the stories of of characters of color, uh, I think you have a responsibility to do that well and to consult with people who have those identities. That doesn't mean that um, just because uh, I went through this process, of course, there are still people from those communities who could have critical comments about the work because there's no consensus within any community about anything. Um, you can't please everybody. No, never. Yeah. <laughs> Just finally, you, you are a lawyer working in the areas of, of human rights and labor law. What does your legal experience suggest about where we are as a society now on the issues you treat in Crocus's Hatch from Snow, you know, and again, the periods you cover are sort of the late mm. 2007, 2008 period and late 40s, early 50s. Mm-hmm. No, that's really interesting. Um, I think that there are some really important things that have happened recently in terms of human rights um, legislation. So uh, in recent years, gender identity and gender expression have been added to provincial and federal human rights legislation. Um, And so that allows for greater protections, particularly for trans folks within the 2SLGBTQ community. There is also some recognition in uh, case law that when you are running a human rights analysis, you should look at people's identities intersectionally. So you don't just look at, for example, like a queer person of color with a disability as who's experienced discrimination as someone who's experienced discrimination as one, a queer person, two, a person of color, and three, a person with a disability. You look at how all of those identities intersect to create a particular experience of discrimination. So I think that that's very important. But 
I mean, if you look at some of the recent decisions uh, of the Nova Scotia Human Rights Tribunal, there's still some pretty extreme cases of discrimination that happen in this province, um, you know, particularly with regard to the African Nova Scotian community looking at the Wortley report about street checks. Um, there are still a lot of problems. Well, Jamie Burnett, thank you very much for joining us on Book Me. Thanks so much for having me. Jamie Burnett is the author of Crocus's Hatch from Snow, published by Vagrant Press. All profits she receives from the book will be used to support organizations, initiatives, and scholarships run by and for Indigenous and African Nova Scotian people. To hear past episodes of our podcast, go to bookmepodcast.ca or just pop bookme with an exclamation mark in your search engine. BookMe is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox is in full bloom as our technician in all seasons. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. (laughs) 